welcome to Joyful Climate Writing. This is a bonus podcast episode. It's a recording of a lecture that I gave for Veganuary, and it's about sustainability and veganism. All of the references and the PowerPoint slides that I used are linked in the show notes. If you want more information, feel free to check it out. And I hope you find it informative. If you have any questions, if you want any access to articles that I mentioned, feel free to contact me at ellsworthkrebs at gmail.com. That's E-L-L-S-W-O-R-T-H-K-R-E-B-S at gmail.com. Enjoy. really appreciate you giving up a bit of your time today for what promises to be a really interesting talk. Um, we're joined today by Dr. Catherine Ellsworth-Krebs, who is a Chancellor's Fellow in Sustainable Design at Strathclyde University. Um, Catherine is an interdisciplinary researcher who works at the intersection of environmental, sustainability and energy demand, design and behavioural change. And currently she's focused on working with organisations to develop new ways to intervene in environmental sustainability issues. So things like reducing waste, reducing um, reducing organisations' carbon footprints, um, energy demands, things like that, with a view to creating a culture of sustainability. So obviously a really, really laudable aim there. Um, this is the third Veganuary event that we're running the DFE Vegan Network. Um, we have another one next week as well, so I would encourage you to, uh, to dial into that as well if you can. But without further ado, Catherine, I will hand over to you um, and we'll get underway. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the introduction, Connor, and uh, to all of you for being here. Um, I'm really honoured to get to present. Um, this event partly came about because I wrote a piece called uh, The Imperfect Vegan, and Connor came across it and heard me talking about some of my frustrations about how often when we talk about sustainability, you know, people start wanting to ask me about recycling and get focused on things that don't matter quite as much. So what I want to talk about today in my presentation is the actions that have some of the biggest impact on your carbon footprint. And for me, this is a question I've been asking since 2008. So you can tell probably from my accent that I'm not from the UK, but in 2008, I came over to the University of St. Andrews to study sustainable development. At that time, it was the flagship degree in sustainability for the UK. And I just haven't left and I keep researching this question. So I wanna share what I've learned in that time with you all. And we're going to start actually with a little quiz um, and Connor is going to help me with that. So we want to kind of get a baseline and see what you guys think have the biggest impacts. Um, and then we'll go from there. So I don't want to give too much away right now. So there's nine questions. Please go through. And what we're asking here is for each of the of the strategies that are listed, which how big of a reduction do you think it will have on your carbon footprint? A small reduction, a medium reduction, or a large reduction? So just go through and have a go at that. Thanks, Connor. Yeah, so this is from the New York Times. Um, it's a quiz that came out last month, and it's based on a study by some different ecological economists. Um, so I can I've put the link in if anyone wants to actually read the, the paperwork on that. So 
yeah, there's nine questions, and then we'll see how we relate to um, a thousand Americans who were surveyed with these same questions. Okay, it looks like the responses are slowing down. We're on 65 okay. at the moment. Um, so Can do we... you want me to go through and, tell, well, yes. and, and say what the highest vote was in each for each one? Yes, please. So, um, and everyone can yeah. see the screen now. So we're going to put put our answers into the into yes. the New York Times quiz. Okay, so buying fewer things. So we we got medium was the highest vote for that one moderate. Okay, so this one's actually quite small, even though it's one of those common things that we hear, um, and that's partly because what's embedded in just like the stuff we have. You also have to think about like energy use in the home or your travel. So just the items you have are quite minimal. Uh, lowering the room temperature. Again, we, we went for medium on that one. Okay. Um, and this is also quite small. Um, this is partly because like the building fabric um, can be really important. So there's things outside of your, like you controlling the thermostat that also influence your um, heating consumption. Well, for example, in this country, uh, we didn't put heat pumps in there, um, but that one is moderate. And I guess for the same reason I was just saying, like, that's actually thinking about, like, the whole um, heating system that you have in your house and making it more efficient. But, of course, you know, the UK has some of the oldest, leakiest housing stock. It might not always have as big of an impact or always be appropriate. Uh, carpooling. No, energy efficient appliances. Energy efficient appliances. Again, we uh, we went for medium, okay, moderate. So this one is small again, um, partly because actually most of the carbon embedded in, like, say, a laptop is in the laptop itself, in the production of it, and not in the um, use of it. So for your energy consumption just in your home, two-thirds of it is for heating in this country, so that's really big. And then um, actually appliances are, like, 12%. Like, it's going up, but it's actually a really small part of your overall just energy consumption, I'm not talking about travel um, in that context. We didn't do carpooling. I'm just going to put it as medium since we seem to like medium. Um, so again, this one has a, a lower impact than you might expect. It's quite a small effect. Um, and we can come into that as we talk about other car shifts. What do we get for recycling? So for recycling, we went for small. Yeah, I can't, I maybe gave that one away. <laughs> I had a, I wasn't going to talk about recycling much um, during this presentation, actually. Um, eating vegetarian diet, we didn't do because we're, because we could only ask nine questions. Um, so that one they do say has a moderate effect. And um, you're kind of see, actually, these are ordered in relation to the amount of Americans who were surveyed um, got them right. So only a quarter of Americans actually were identifying this vegetarian diet as being something that has a moderate impact. Uh, living car free. I think we missed that one as well. Oh, I thought we did it. I thought I answered it. That's, oh, no, it is. I've got the order wrong. I oh. apologize. So we had a, that as a large impact was the vote for that. Oh, yeah, it is. That one we got right, but only a quarter of the American surveys got that right. Um, I think that's part of it. Like carpooling is going to be lower than living like without a car. Or um, I know from reading the study that getting an electric car was also rated as having a large impact. Organic food, I think we skipped. No, organic food we have. Oh. And we go in small for that. Oh, dear. Sorry. Okay, so the answer was moderate. <laughs> but, yeah, we said it was small, which is kind of understandable because um, organic farming can actually 
uh, store more carbon in the soil, but then because it might produce less, it might you know require more land to grow that same amount of food. Um, how about using renewable electricity? Without a large flood. Yep. Um, and that's, yeah, that's spot on. Um, but again, this is something that the Americans, less and less of them were identifying as a, an important action or something that has a high impact. And flying? Um, large again. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've uh, definitely beat the um, American Americans that were surveyed for this. And then last but not least, our vegan diet. Uh, 71% voted that has a large effect. Yeah. Um, versus only 6% got this right from those who were sampled. Um, okay, so actually we've done really well in terms of acknowledging what does have the highest impact. So maybe what I'm presenting on won't be too new for everyone. Um, but we also, it looks like, thought that some of the moderate um, things are actually that we, we kind of thought they have a bigger impact than this study would suggest. And those are also the things I think we talk about the most, like buy fewer things, turn down your thermostat. Um, those are often kind of general advice you might hear. And I think those are also easier in some ways than um, flying or changing your diet. Okay, thank you for your help with that, Connor. <laughs> that was, it was seamless. Okay, so, um, what I want to talk about in my presentation today, then, is uh, those two two of the top um, like high impact activities. Um, the first one is flying, and then also being vegan, since it's January as well. And I'm partly choosing and focusing on those two because I think actually us as individuals have more control over them when it comes to living a car-free life. That might depend on if you live in a city versus somewhere more rural, and then also even what country you're in and what infrastructure is provided. Like if I was talking to you and we were all in Switzerland, it might be quite easy for us to live car-free and like take public transportation because their public transportation is relatively affordable if you live there and um, quite extensive. But in this country, you might not feel like that is um, an easy choice for you to make. And then we're not going to talk about renewable electricity or renewable energy, um, partly because you, know, you could pay a tariff for it, but it's also, again, related to broader infrastructure changes. So I'm going to focus on those two. But then, of course, we can't only think about us as individuals. And I think it's really valuable to also be thinking about your capacity um, as a professional or the communities that you're involved with and how you might be able to nudge um, the system in those spaces. So um, I also wanted to acknowledge before going into this that um, in many ways we also probably can have a bigger impact than people who might be living in low-income countries. So this is often a figure that I would start my lectures with. And actually, um, if anyone's read the climate book, which was edited by Greta Thunberg and came out in October this year, uh, this is where they started as well. So it's, I think, really useful to just be aware that the top 10% of the global population, so that big dark green band at the top of that graph, is responsible for 50% of lifestyle carbon emissions. And according to the latest figures, you are in that top 10% if you earn roughly over 33,000 pounds a year. And so like, I know I'm in that top 
And I'm not saying this actually to try to make anyone feel guilty or shamed, um, because there could be variety in there too, but just um, to actually acknowledge that the changes you make could have a much more significant impact than, say, someone who's living um, in a lower income country or like India, and actually the average um, carbon footprint there actually might be within kind of what's uh, deemed as like a 1.5 lifestyle or planetary boundaries. So we also see the same inequality actually when it comes to flying. Um, I know just from like my own friends and my family that flying is seen as something that's very normal, but in a global context, only 4% of the population flies annually. And if we look at the UK, <laughs> uh, this is a study that came out um, actually by the same people who did the New York Times quiz. Um, and it was also covered in the carbon brief. They found that um, the richest 10% um, in the UK use more energy flying than the poorest um, segment of the population. And again, in the UK, we also see that divide, that actually only 15% of people are taking 77% of the flights annually. So there's an equality issue here. Um, and that's partly to do with just the fact that like a flight consumes so much energy so quickly. Um, so this is a figure from Staying Grounded, and they suggest that, yeah, a long flight from London to Hong Kong would be 3.7 tons of carbon. And um, what's deemed as like an equitable or like uh, within planetary boundaries, a 1.5 lifestyle is 2.5 tons. So you're already over it just with this one long haul flight. Um, just to put it in another context, uh, I think why flying has such a big impact is because you can just consume so many resources in such a short period of time. So if we look at the flight from um, London to Rome, 0.7 ton, uh, that's equivalent to buying about 1.4 of a laptop, just like a standard um, laptop that you could buy. So it's about the same amount of carbon, but it's like I might use a, a, you know, a laptop every three years, not in three hours. Um, or if anyone's heard of the book, How Bad Are Bananas? I'm just gonna use a, a banana comparison. Um, that would also be equivalent to eating like 6,000 bananas. So a flight from London to Rome is similar to like eating 6,000 bananas. I can't do that in a few hours. So the fact that you can do it so quickly and also then you, know, you can just keep consuming more and more quickly. Like, oh, if I can hop to Rome, um, then I might go to more, Rome more often than if you were to take the train to Rome, for instance. Um, which you can see is a much, much, <laughs> like as a tiny, you know, could be within your 1.5 lifestyle carbon footprint. So to also put this in the context, um, because I, I agree, like, or I'm assuming you might be like, what is a 2.5 ton lifestyle? What does that even mean? Um, the This is from a report that was just comparing different countries. So you can see that the UK's average footprint according to their calculations, is 8.5. And you can again see how big the transport um, category is. Um, and so there's a line there on the left that's trying to show where we would have to be if we were in that 2.5 um, ton. And this is what I was saying about other countries are already kind of there. So that's why this is actually important. Like we can make a difference with our own lifestyles. Like we are already consuming more than our quote unquote fair share. Um, 
But what I think is nice about flying as an example as well is if actually not that many people are flying, um, there's a really uh, good systemic solution that is actually progressive. And that's a frequent flyer levy. And so um, studies that have been done on it have shown that no matter how it's applied, it actually gets at the people who are having the biggest impact, who are making those emissions. So the top 10%, this is based on the UK, of emitters are responsible for 60.8% of flight emissions. Um, so again, if we are talking about globally, um, looking at lifestyle emissions, that 10% were responsible for 50% of emissions when it comes to flying in the UK specifically, it's 10% responsible for 60 and even more if you're just looking at frequent flying. And frequent flyer levies have actually been voted on as something that's really popular because people understand that it's progressive and it's actually targeting the people who um, maybe should be paying, right, if we're talking about a moral question to this. Um, and that actually most people wouldn't be affected by it. So it could be applied like your first flight, return flight in a year, um, there's no tax on it, and then there might be progressive ones. And then ideally, you know, that those taxations could be reinvested in public transport or other, um, other ways of giving around. And uh, this is something that has been shown to be popular in different ways. Uh, in the UK, there is a 2020 Citizens Assembly. So uh, this is where they got a representative sample of the UK population and uh, taught them about climate science and presented different options to them, like policy mechanisms, and then had them actually vote on it. And 80% of them were in favor of frequent fire levies. And we've seen that in other countries that have also done climate assemblies. So I think this is a really nice um, potential solution that again, gets away from just you as an individual being responsible, um, but could be one of those bigger mechanisms. And it also doesn't fall into the same issues that like um, the Gilets Jaunes would have done because again, it's it's really taxing who's um, who could afford that. Um, Frequent flying, again, if you look, this is, again, from that same study from the carbon brief, but you can see that actually um, energy consumption, like in your home, is about standard for all of the different um, income brackets, but it's the dark red and that light red chunk, those are international flights and domestic flights that make the biggest difference in terms of um, people's energy consumption. So it would actually get at those who can afford it and would be a progressive um, tax. I can't read the questions right now, but I will try to scan them at the end. Um, so we've seen some movement uh, around kind of looking at how do we travel differently and, and trying to reduce flights like France uh, at the end of last year banned uh, flights that could be taken by train in, in two hours. And so it's a start. I mean, in this country, that might only affect like the flight from London to Manchester. But again, it's trying to divert money back into um, public or yeah, public transport infrastructure instead. Um, I wanted to take a little bit of time though, just to acknowledge maybe my own journey here. Um, I didn't say, but you know, when I decided to study in the UK, um, I, sustainable development and how to live a low carbon lifestyle, I wasn't acknowledging that contradiction that I was going to fly halfway around the world or a third of the way around the world. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that. Even if I've known, I remember when I first um, read one of the stats and discovered I was looking at my own carbon footprint, I took carbon conversations in 2010. And I remember in, while doing that, finding out that stat of like, actually, you could fly once every three years. And that was the estimate then to stay within planetary boundaries. 
or kind of a more equitable footprint. And um, I didn't, you know, I didn't stop flying at that point. And I felt a lot of shame about it for quite a while. And I did try to reduce and maybe I'd fly home um, once a year or once every 18 months. And so it's just like, there's a lot of different reasons why we fly. It's about, you know, connection with family. Um, sometimes it's adventure seeing somewhere new. I know a lot of people talk about just being warm um, and wanting somewhere, you know, a bit sunnier and warmer. Um, there might be promotion opportunities. I know from higher education institutions, it can be a lot easier to get money to travel to another country than it can be to get money to do something that's about knowledge exchange and trying to help your local area because promotions are all about international recognition. So these are really complex issues. And um, so while I'm presenting like what does have the biggest impact, I think it's also up to you to kind of acknowledge and figure out what makes sense in your own life. Um, I know actually for me that the pandemic and not being able to travel was a shift and I haven't flown in three years and I've gotten really into gardening and, and growing vegetables and I like I really love seeing my plants uh, over the summer and if I um, wasn't wasn't forced to stay grounded it's something I've wanted to do for a long time but I never quite got in the habit because I would usually fly back to the U.S. to see my family in the summer and kind of lose that so I think sometimes it's also trying to look for what are the benefits of, you know, slower travel over land or or staying more local? Um, but I guess one first step is to acknowledge this information. But then there's a lot of different ways about how you um, then process that into your own life. Um, so next, I wanted to talk about being vegan as another top action that you can take. Um, so this is based on the IPCC's um, 2019 report on climate change and land. And so uh, while a, a report I should, or a figure I showed you earlier that was from Stay Grounded and they're focusing on um, flying and the impact of flying, this report um, is saying that, you know, you could reduce your carbon footprint by eight tons if you ate vegan instead of um, other diets. And I think why they're so different is partly because this is really trying to take into account um, land use and recognizing that a vegan diet actually requires a lot less land. Um, and this was actually a report in 2019 that I think really hit home for me. And I finally felt like, okay, I can't, like, vegetarians actually not enough because, well, I'll get to that point, but thinking about, um, you know, dairy products as well and, um, the impact that they have. So this was their report and they were just showing, which I think is kind of mind boggling that um, of the landmass that's not under ice, only 1% is covered by like human infrastructure. And actually the biggest percentage, 37% is for pastures um, and, and raising livestock. So um, whereas the cropland um, is, Sorry, I actually can't see my screen very well. It's like 12%, I think, or 17%. It's actually a much smaller amount if you're only growing crops. And the reason for that is because there's real inefficiencies in um, a kilocalorie of energy. So if you feed 100 kilocalories to a cow, you only get two kilocalories of beef from that. So that's because like when we eat our food as well, it doesn't all go into muscle or growing like fat. It's actually... Um, a lot of it's just for them to continue um, kind of like surviving. So it's really inefficient, actually. Um, 
to be consuming um, and raising livestock. And so 80% of global deforestation is the result of agricultural production. And a lot of that is what leads to habitat loss. Um, so uh, what drives deforestation? Um, this is from Our World and Data, which I actually really recommend as a, a source of um, data on lots of different issues. And they have some really great stuff on veganism as well, just comparing different products. And so they were looking at, well, actually the majority of deforestation occurs in the tropics. And most of that is for beef, soy, and palm oil production. Um, and again, um, what we see is that um, livestock, well, like cows take up a lot of that space. And so I think the other thing sometimes you hear, like, so I mentioned soy in that categorization. I think I've gotten that response sometimes is, you know, people, there's a lot of whataboutism when it comes to talking about being vegan. And it's like, well, but soy, like soy's the cause of deforestation. Um, but actually three quarters of soy production is again going for livestock feed. And then again, there's that, those inefficiencies um, that's passed on there. So um, it's actually only 7% of the soy products that are grown for human consumption, like to uh, soy and tofu and tempeh, um, which I think is, again, really startling when you start to look at that. So uh, we see this repeated in terms of cereals as well. Two thirds, um, or sorry, a half of the world's cereals are only eaten by people. 41% again go to feed livestock. In the EU, it's even less. A third of our cereals we eat um, as humans, and it doesn't get fed or end up somewhere else um, along the supply chain. And in the US, it's only one tenth of cereals that are consumed or produced for just human consumption. And so, um, because of, again, this more land um, that's required um, and because of these inefficiencies in um, kilocalories, we do see that um, you can see like beef and lamb have the highest footprints. And then the smallest ones in this graph um, are like tofu, peas and beans. And this is true whether you compare it by um, protein content, weight or calories. Um, the it's always you know a starkly less impact to be consuming just um directly like eating plants rather than feeding growing all of that and then feeding it to animals and that's true even when you talk about processed plant foods um morningstar is a u.s brand for those who don't know so that's you know a bit higher but you can see again that um beef and lamb are in the top there's lab-grown meat that's like kind of one of the exceptions uh, and that's just due to a lot of energy at this point. And, you know, that might change as, as those technologies develop. And so, again, you can just see, like, you know, corn, um, all of these al alternatives, they're always just such a small fraction compared to eating um, beef, for instance. And this is why it can be um, actually more significant to cut out beef and lamb and dairy than perhaps like eggs, for instance. So uh, continuing to eat chicken and eggs if you're focused on the environmental impact. And I know you've had some talks probably about, you know, maybe nutrition or kind of the moral element of eating animals. Um, yeah, is, is going to be significant. Um, so again, I thought I'd just like have a little pause and acknowledge um, some of my own challenges in um, 
again, being aware of the benefits of a vegan diet for my environmental footprint, but maybe not always acting on it. Um, so for me, it really was this report in 2019 that was like, okay, I really can't argue with it anymore. Um, but I struggled for a while. Like, I really like milk in my tea. And I went to China for one of those reasons I was saying where it was really easy to get money to go work in China. And for a month, I didn't drink milk in my tea. I was like, I'm done with milk now. But when I came back, I just, I really uh, wanted it again. But luckily by that point, I'd finally found oat milk. And like, that was such a big shift. It was like, oh, this is delicious. I'm happy to make this change. But before that, I tried soy milk. I just don't like the after flavor. Almond milk, I found, you know, too sweet. So I know these are like, this is like a high level thing about your footprint, but there's just really mundane considerations. Um, there's also, of course, the social side of it. I think there's a lot of care and like love that people express when they cook for their friends and family or are cooked for. And um, I know my mom would make me a chicken noodle soup whenever I was sick and I, I still make it for myself, but I've been experimenting and I finally, you know, know how to make it with, um, yeah, I guess a, a vegan milk, oat milk and um, seitan. And I can still feel a lot of that comfort for myself. And that was really fun. Um, but yeah, it was also, I think, you know, my husband, I, when I first met him, he was quite a meat eater and I wanted him to do some of the cooking and I didn't want to do all the cooking. So the nights he cooked, um, we started to have meat. Um, but that's changed. Actually, he saw the film Game Changers on Netflix. He'll say it's more complicated, and, he, and he, I'm sure he did read on it a lot more. But um, that one's really about uh, kind of the masculinity, um, or, or it touches on that, masculinity and, and meat eating. Um, and also just like your, your health and your fitness in terms of um, having more plant-based diets. And so actually once he decided to be vegan, we got a Bosch book. I don't know if anyone... Um, has come across Bosch. I was excited and I went and grabbed my own. Um, we actually experimented during the pandemic. Yeah, other people know Bosch. That's awesome. Uh, we made every recipe in it during the pandemic and it was so much fun. Um, and actually now, you know, when say like my in-laws or some of my family members make a big effort to cook vegan, like I feel that same love and care and it's not always about the nostalgic flavors um, that I miss. You know, you can show a lot of that um, engagement. So, um, yeah, I'm the piece I wrote and I have in the ending is kind of my journey about being an imperfect vegan. You know, I still uh, slip up. I think most recently I started a new job and someone offered to make me coffee and um, it came with just milk in it. And I you know, decided not to make a big deal of it and drink some. Um, but, yeah, so I think. Recognizing that this is one of those areas that you can focus attention, though, is really valuable. But then you have to figure out how it might fit into your own life. Um, so to recap those, um, I just thought I would say again how instead of focusing on like recycling or like buying less stuff, um, it is really worthwhile to look at your flying practices and also your diet and um, reducing your animal products or specifically beef, lamb, and dairy. And I thought I would just link to um, Take the Jump, which is an organization that, you know, kind of helps you think through those everyday practices or become part of a kind of community working on that. Um, and also they try to make suggestions in relation to that 1.5 lifestyle. Um, 
but I also said, I don't want to talk to you just as an individual. Um, in some ways, I would recommend that you, uh, <laughs> if you can, you could also think a lot less about yourself as an individual and think about what organizations, organizational practices or communities can I influence? Like, how can we create system systemic change? And um, this is something that I actually laughed when I was reading the climate book because Greta Thunberg touches on it and um, she's like, is it system change or individual change? And she's like, yeah, definitely. Like, it's both. Of course, it's both. Um, this is something that this debate between like who and what has ag agency, is it individuals or is it the structures? Is it do we need government action or again, is it end users and consumers? This is something that I think most of my research is centered around and I'm almost tired of the debates. Like we need both. Um, so one example I wanted to bring to your attention um, is uh, from kind of home energy, from a home energy perspective. And this is where my research started. So I think this is why I'm falling back to this topic. Um, but I've kind of put up four different images to, to represent different actors. So if we think about the fact that we've had a, a recent government announcement for a lot more insulation, which is great um, in our homes. So we kind of have government as an actor down there um, that they're giving out this sort of money. Um, but we also had a lot of protesters, right? Insulate Britain uh, brought this much more into public discourse than um, we had seen before that. And this is despite the fact that we've known, you know, for decades that the UK has some of the oldest, leakiest housing stocks in Europe. Like insulation um, is always going to be a, a really important way to reduce energy consumption and address issues of affordability. Um, so, yeah, so we have our protesters, we have government, and then in the top, like, that's someone installing a heat pump, I guess, and I was thinking more of, like, you as a householder, you decide that you're going to do that. And then um, in the bottom corner, we actually have, like, the heating installers themselves um, or builders. And some of the study or the research that really drew this to my attention is by um, someone named Faye Wade, and she did a lot of work with heat installers. She actually felt like they were these middlemen, these intermediaries that were really overlooked. And that actually, when you go to change your heating system in your house, who do you trust? Like, how do you make those decisions? 50% of people just do whatever their heating installer suggests. And so actually, those middlemen, those people who tell you what thermostat setting to put your house on, a lot of people also don't ever change the programming after that initial time, either because they don't know how to or they're lazy, um, if you want to go there. But, you know, there's um, like those intermediaries actually are really significant in terms of what normal temperatures people put their homes at and also what new heating systems they might decide to put in. And so one of the things she does talk about partly is that actually in order to be be seen as an expert, um, a heating installer might want to keep recommending a product that they know and that they've used because they know how to install it rather than um, accepting new technologies. So, you know, even actually engaging with them about heat pump installation, for instance. So actually engaging with heat installers rather than householders, that's who's going to actually deliver these new policies, that government um, funding. And I'm <laughs> bringing this up partly as well just because um, – like, I've done a lot of this work myself. So, you know, I um, 
I didn't have a car until actually quite recently and I cycled everywhere and I can cycle as much as I want and that can affect my footprint. But actually when I was um, at the University of St. Andrews, I helped set up a bike maintenance and rental scheme because it's not just about me. So it's like, how can I help other people to cycle more? So we set up a scheme that um, helps people fix their bikes so that they'll keep using them and they don't get abandoned. We collected abandoned bikes um, fix them and you have a lot of turnover in a small university town so actually again instead of lots of people having to bring a bike and there's all the embedded resources within that um, that reuse and that sharing has a way bigger impact than I can just from learning to cycle myself or not learning but like choosing to cycle myself um, so I just like say consider the role you have as a professional and within your community like how you might be able to make um, a shift um, so I wanted to draw your attention a bit to um, corporate uh, carbon accounting. And so for organizations, we talk about scope one, two, and three emissions. And scope one and two emissions are actually regulated and measured in the UK. Um, and so scope one is just to do like with the gas that you that might be burned um, to heat buildings or uh, the petrol if they have like a, a gray fleet that drives around for some reason. And then scope two is um, electricity that's bought because that's produced indirectly and the carbon emissions happen somewhere else. And so scope one and two, actually, you as um, <laughs> an employee, you don't really influence it that much. Like this, this will be sorted out by the energy manager or the state staff, and they want to make the buildings more efficient. They want to use less heating. Um, they might be interested in paying, like it's one of the easier steps, like we saw, big impact, big tick um, for renewable energy. So like that's already taken care of. But actually, scope three is like everything else. It's the business travel. It's procurement, whether it's for food or for, you know, your laptops. Um it could actually be the impact of the product you create. And this is what's not regulated. And this is actually where you can have an impact. Um, just to put it in context as well, again, I'm going to be referring to higher education institutions. There was a study of that, and it found that for higher education institutions in the UK, 60% of those carbon emissions come from scope three. So it's not inconsequential again. Like this, these are uh, big areas to be making shifts and there's not as much kind of drive or regulation um, to push that, those changes. Um, so I wanted to actually more start a conversation than say like, these are the answers because I think that a lot of times um, it's very institution specific or organization specific. Um, but again, I would really recommend thinking first about like, what has some of the biggest impact. And again, that'll be flying and, um, and food and, and veganism, right? And so I think often one of the first steps is always to do an audit, like actually find out um, what is the footprint. So for a lot of these higher education institutions, they did find for their business travel, like 90% is flying, even though, you know, people might take trains and um, drive around the country. It's still those long haul flights or the flights add up really quickly. Um, and then why? And um, I saw a really fun 
well, fun, probably because I'm like a bit of a nerd with this stuff. But um, one organization, what they did is they actually looked at a department and they uh, created like a bit of a game. So they took casino chips and they had one color represent um, the impact of a long haul flight and the other one, the short haul flights. And they actually made, um, they visualized everyone's footprint, travel footprint with casino chips. And that allowed people to talk about um, like, oh, actually, our footprint is mainly like two people who just seem to do lots of long haul flights. Like we might be able to meet some of our targets if we just like engaged with those people. Or maybe that's not equitable. Maybe it's not fair that those two people are. But it, it starts or it opens up the possibility for a conversation. Um, and so I think that's also the next step. So one is like starting to get baselines, starting to actually see where are the impacts, where are the opportunities, and then thinking about like, what are the policies we want to have? What do we think is fair? Who should be traveling and why? Like, when is it appropriate? Um, I think the other thing that stood out for me was uh, Just Stop Oil was protesting a lot um, in November. And, you know, having one of them, someone's, you know, willing to get arrested uh, because they're worried about the, you know, fossil fuel consumption, and um, that's a very specific one that Just Stop Oil is talking about and targeting. But, you know, they were talking about actually, right, how our government's actions or our actions could be leading to famine, like 22 million people um, in the Horn of Africa who are starving, and it's linked to climate change and extreme weather, or the floods in Pakistan that dislocated 33 million people, or even the thousand people that died during the heat wave in the UK this summer. So, you know, how do you make those decisions between, like, is are these flights or you know is are these carbon emissions are those acceptable impact um, for like car, for climate change or these extreme weather events and how they might be affecting others? So starting to have those conversations and then I love the idea of like an internal frequent flyer levy. Like why not? Again, we know it's progressive. That could be another way to start trying to fund or support. Um, other ways of getting around, recognizing perhaps if you take the train, there is an additional cost for a hotel. Um, but I also think it'd be worthwhile having people look at, well, is a flight always faster? Does it always cost less when you start to factor in like the taxi to the airport or just the transport to the airport as well? Um, and then this one I do think is really fun because it's not right. It's about how an organization could help people in their for their lifestyle emissions. And um, there are some organizations that are now saying, if you um, were going to fly, say, to Europe, but you take the train instead and you show us the receipts, we'll give you extra holiday days um, to go overland. Rather than, I think sometimes people are like, I have to fly because I only have so much holiday, right? Um, so I'd love to hear if other people have suggestions or could start thinking about what they might be able to do when it comes to business travel and the footprint of that. Um, but also, like I said, in terms of like vegan or thinking about plant-based um, and making that more normal within an organization. So why can't that be the default when meals are ordered for any like catered event? Like actually, if people have to write in that they want meat rather than that they want a vegetarian option, um, because everyone can eat <laughs> the vegetables generally. Um, but often you see yeah, like I'll, I'll see meat left over. And again, if we've just been talking about like meat has such a bigger impact. Um, again, some of the studies from the higher education institutions found that the meat um, for their like events was, you know, 60 percent. Um, 
or, you know, introducing meat-free Mondays or trying to shift around, like, if there's normal orders of milk, does it have to be cow milk? Um, so I actually just wanted to end with a quick request from you all of um, if there's anything you could see trying or um, committing to doing in the January to lower your carbon footprint or your organization's. And then I will scroll back through all the questions. Um, so if anyone would be willing to put it in the chat, I would love to see um, like other people's ideas, again, about how you might be able to lower your institution's footprint or your own. Catherine, shall I, yeah. shall I go back and read questions to you and then meet while we're doing the questions? Sure. You could be thinking of, uh, thinking of uh, responses to that point in particular because I do think yeah. it's a really good challenge to people. Um, so, first of all, thank you. That was really interesting. There was so, so much information contained in that. I definitely learned a lot there. Um, and just thank you for giving up your time and, and sharing all of your, your knowledge and your, your expertise with us. Um, there, are, there have been a few uh, questions coming in the chat, so I think just for the benefit of, of the recording, um, yeah. as much as anything, I'll, I'll sort of read them to you and you can come back. So, the first. <laughs>